It's time for Dodger baseball. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! There it goes! See ya! The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Welcome into Off the Air, the legacy of WFUV Sports. I'm Andrew Bellotta alongside Alex Wolves. And this week, Alex, we're going to be joined by WFUV alum and the radio voice of the Washington Nationals, Charlie Slows. Definitely is a very fun interview. Yeah, always fun to do Off the Air, Andrew. One of my favorite things here at FUV. Good to have you on the podcast it's been a while yeah. so it's always good to switch it up um spring break so still getting work done here really appreciate yeah. that and, uh no i mean there's obviously it's a great guest to have on spring break and it should be a lot of fun we just got the news obviously baseball coming back and we're waiting to make this one happen with the news there and and super excited to talk to charlie obviously you know from that as you kind of said earlier the golden age of fuv in those 80s and, and he's an alum right in the heart of that 1983 and such a tremendous career at fuv calling games here and in sense doing basketball doing baseball and really building a long-standing relationship with the Nationals. So a lot to unpack with him and, and we're looking forward to it. Yeah, he's definitely been around the block for sure, whether it be the Nationals calling their World Series, called the Tampa Bay Rays, did play-by-play for them, did play-by-play in the NBA for the Washington Bullets before, uh, you know, they became extinct. So he's definitely a guy that just did did so many uh, different teams, different sports. And it's really, really interesting to see kind of how he's able to, you know, look at different sports and the connections he's had with different sports and just his overall career path starting, you know, in Yonkers, New York, all the way yeah, to now with the Nationals. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Like you kind of mentioned, Andrew, you know, having those those different experiences, whether it is in basketball, whether it is in baseball, or even different experiences preceding broadcasting, right? He talks about his time at KMOX Radio, working with the likes of Jack Buck, Bob Costas, learning from those people growing up, you know, with the transistor radio underneath his pillow, yeah. listening to some of his favorite broadcasters growing up. Really familiar stories, but he obviously has a unique perspective on those growing up here, going to Fordham with already some broadcasting experience and obviously turning it into a really tremendous career sense and calling a World Series with the Nationals and everything in between. So, so much to unpack and should be a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. But without further ado, let's get into the interview with the radio voice of the Washington Nationals, Charlie Slows. Pitch, swing and a line drive, left field. Stevenson coming in, dives. He caught it. He caught it. He caught it. And a curly W's in the books. Three balls, two strikes. The pitch, swing and a long drive. WFUV alum and the radio voice of the Washington Nationals, Charlie Slows. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. You're welcome, guys. Good to talk to you. And I first wanted to ask you before we get to your time at Fordham and look back at some memories about baseball. And obviously, baseball's back after the lockout. I know you're probably very excited about that, but I'm not sure if this is for the Washington media. So I'd love to hear your kind of uh, take on this. But we heard that Howie Rose and Michael K, they'll be traveling to road games for the first time in a few years. Is that the same for the Nationals? And how are you excited to, you know, finally travel and all that stuff here? Oh, wow. Are we excited uh, when we yeah. were told that normalcy will return and that we are going to travel? Because uh, while it might have sounded mostly normal to people, especially last year, 
listening to broadcasts, it was definitely not normal for us trying to do games off a series of TV monitors and piece together what we could see versus what we couldn't. And, you know, sometimes being a little hesitant and late and basically we're almost felt like we were merely acting at times, you know, that uh, we, we, were, we were trying to make it sound as if we were there, but there were times that you, you just couldn't cover it up. There were things that you couldn't see uh, that things that were, were not shown to you. And we were just at the mercy of the pictures. And I think part of the reason, Charlie, why people do care so much about, you know, what broadcasters are doing and care so much about baseball because they love the sport. And something I kind of wanted to start with with you was your love for baseball and kind of when you were a kid, you know, in New York and, and before you went to Fordham, what kind of, you know, made you fall in love with baseball in the first place in the sport that you thought you might want to spend a career in? You know, if I write a book someday, that's probably the, the, the question you, you've got to answer <laughs> for people uh, almost right away. It, you know, it was the sense of the first time you you walk into a ballpark and you, and you see the green grass and the, just the, the enormity of it and how a, a crowd reacts, not only in baseball, but any spectator sport, you know, when a goal is scored in hockey, you know, when a ball is put in play in baseball, a, bit, a big shot in the NBA, the roar of the crowd. And, you know, I, I, I always just early on, you know, when I, when I started following sports with, you know, not as many things were on TV as they are now, uh, so you found yourself listening to the radio broadcast. And as much as I followed the game, I, I followed the broadcasters that would look to see where they were positioned. And, you know, I think, I think early on, I, I felt like, well, if I couldn't do what they're doing on the field or on the ice or on the court, I want to do that. Cause that's pretty cool. They pay you to do that for a living <laughs> and that's what you do. And then you go home at night. That, that sounds like a pretty good life to me. And I've been fortunate to, to say that that's how it's gone for me. And it seems like you uh, fell in love with broadcasting at a young age. Was that the reason that you uh, wanted to attend Fordham and join WFEV? Yeah, pretty much. It took me that way. I, I grew up uh, in Yonkers, not far from Fordham, uh, you know, just outside the city. And, and uh, you know, when, it, when the, the bug bit me in and, and I was doing sports casts at a closed circuit feed in my high school, and we, we ended up getting a Board of Education TV station, and we did the first local telecast of any kind of a high school football game that we recorded and uh and then we started doing other events and you know I was still in high school so I had to look for what was the next step and and you know I started listening to WFUV and we had one-on-one -on, -one on Sunday night just Sunday nights then from 11 to 2 but it was still at that time the longest running sports talk show in New York because there was no all sports radio if anyone in uh your generation can imagine there was no WFAN and there were no cell phones. Imagine that. Uh, so radio was big. Uh, you know, sports phone was the thing. If you weren't near radio, 976-1313, and a bunch of us all worked there, too, is how you found out if someone won a game before it was on the 11 o'clock news. <laughs> you wouldn't find out what happened in a game uh, unless you knew somebody was at the game and called you. That kind of. But people didn't call because they didn't run from they didn't run to pay phones to make calls during games. They couldn't text you. Uh, it, it was a completely different world, but, you know, Fordham seemed like the place for me for a chance to do talk shows and play by play of, of, of every sport that, that Fordham played back then. We did basketball, football, hockey, soccer. Uh, we, we did it all. I, you know, ice hockey, ice level at the Riverdale ice skating rink, which I think was, uh, was converted to a, a, a soda bottling plant over, uh, on the, uh, over off the West side of the major Deegan. 
uh, the, I'm not sure what it is these days. You get used guy, you guys might know, but that's also where they used to make the Stella Doro bakery and you would, you, you would smell them baking when you drive by on the highway. You mentioned a lot of things there, Charlie, that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into sports phones. Definitely one of them. We've heard a lot of other alumni here, whether it's John Martin or Paul Dettino talk about their experience at sports phone. And you also mentioned listening to a lot of New York broadcasters. Something I wanted to ask you was, you know, I was coming across some, some articles and some interviews where you talked about some of the people that inspired you, you know, Marv Albert or Marty Glickman, someone who obviously means a lot to, to WFUV. Could you just speak a little bit about some of the voices that you heard as a child that really resonated with you and what you try to take away from them as you got into broadcasting yourself? Well, you know, we had great announcers. The Mets, when I was very young, had Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy, two Hall of Fame broadcasters. And Ralph Kiner was at, with them the longest, uh, was a very long time on radio and eventually uh, just television. Uh, and, you know, the Yankees had their set of announcers then, Phil Rizzuto and Frank Messer and uh, Whitey Ford was doing games and then Bill White uh, in, in those years in the 70s and, and into the 80s. And, uh, and then, of course, Marv was doing everything. When I started following sports, and he was doing just home games for the Knicks and Rangers on radio. They didn't have radio for every game. He would do – maybe both teams were on the road, and he would do one of them. And at the same time, he was doing Giants football when Marty Glickman moved to do the Jets on radio. And then the amazing thing to me was he'd be doing sports on Channel 4 – during the six o'clock news at like get done at like six fifty, and then be at the garden for first uh, for the drop of the puck or, or tip off for a seven thirty game at the garden. You could only do that in Manhattan, get somebody to drive you a few blocks from NBC to the garden and then be back for the 11 o'clock news and do the sports on the 11 o'clock wow. news. He, he was everywhere back then. And later, later on years when I, when I was in the NBA doing the bullets, I reminded him of a time where when he was doing the Giants on radio and they had moved out of Yankee Stadium waiting for Giants Stadium to be built. And before before people remember, they had Giants and Jets actually both played at Shea Stadium for a brief yeah. time. But the Giants played at the Yale Bowl in Connecticut and Marv flew by helicopter after a Sunday afternoon Giants game to do a Rangers Canucks game at 705. And I reminded him of that and he <laughs> said, well, you know, Charlie, you have a memory for great moments in sports history. <laughs> As everyone in New York growing up then had their version of Marv that they could do. <laughs> that's that's awesome for sure. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of continue on like that, the mentoring path and people you looked up to. Um, was there anyone specifically, at, you know, maybe your beginnings at WFUV early on that helped mentor you? If it was, you know, either professor, student, was there anyone that really, you know, when you were just beginning at WFUV? Well, it, it was interesting. I mean, we, as it, as it would turn out, the time I was there, we had what now would be like a, a broadcast all-star team of people mm -hmm. who were there at the same time. When I was a freshman, uh, the, the, the seniors were Bart Bersterna and Dave D'Alessandro. Uh, Bart had a long career working in local sports radio in Connecticut. Dave went on to be a, a writer for uh, in New Jersey and, and New York for a long time. And then course that the next few years was you know michael k and i was in the same class with mike breen and then the guys that's that were behind us bob papa uh john gianone i mean so all of us have been fortunate to paul dettino who you mentioned earlier guys who came before and after us who, who because of the experience we had at fordham and the people we were able to meet and the reputation uh of of coming from wfuv 
that preceded us, some guy named Ben Scully way back. Uh, it didn't hurt. Uh, it helped. I mean, we always, we always, I'm sure you always hear my, and, and it's ironic, my partner on the Nationals games, Dave Jagler is a Syracuse guy. So it's kind of been like <laughs> us against them, you know, uh, for, they probably put more, more over the years into the business, but, uh, we're not too shabby. And, and, uh, you know, we have a great, I think, group of alumni who have, have been fortunate enough to have long careers. Yeah, and definitely a friendly relationship, too. We've had a few different Newhouse alums come back, talk to us, give us workshops. So definitely, definitely some overlap there. And, and something I wanted to ask you about, too, kind of on that same note is something I thought was very interesting. And I was reading some other articles and was wondering if you could comment on this was the fact that you had some experience calling games before getting to Fordham and kind of showed off maybe some demo tapes as a way to kind of get on air a little bit earlier, which is something that we see a lot nowadays. A lot of kids in high school getting a lot of opportunities. So I was just curious on that note, your first days at FDV, when you first got to Fordham, what kind of work? were you doing? Was it more calling games? Was it producing? Was it beat reporting? What was kind of your role at FUV very early on? Well, the thing that was different is this, the station was completely student run then, except for general manager and a chief engineer. And so all the directors were students, you know, your, your juniors and seniors for the most part. And so for sports, you usually started out doing a two to three minute sports cast where they, they had three of them Per day on weekdays, one in the morning, one of the noon news and one of the six o'clock news. And that usually was what you started out with. Freshmen usually didn't end up doing play by play um, because I, I had experience and I submitted a demo tape. I was fortunate that usually you started out with women's basketball. That would have been the first place you started. Um, there weren't many who could do hockey play by play. So we had a guy named Steve Shears had a long career at CBS as a behind the scenes producer. And he was doing hockey at the time. And he heard my hockey tape and he goes, well, this is going to be you very soon. And really for most of the time that I was there, I was the only one that did hockey play by play. We didn't do as many games, basketball in division one sport was really the predominant sport. And, and then you had women's basketball division three football at the time uh, you had soccer. Hockey was a club sport. But because everybody's interest in hockey in New York, you know, that, that was a great opportunity. And that's the thing. You, you, you had all the sports that we could do and the sports talk shows. You usually didn't start out doing one-on-one -on -one as a freshman. Uh, I think it took till, you know, second half of the year for me to get a chance to do one-on-one. -on -one. And maybe, you know, freshmen might have done one show in, in that first year or even in their sophomore year. So we had a lot of people who got chances, but usually, you know, sports cast were the things you had to learn how to do. And, you know, I grew up listening to people do sports casts. So I had a, you know, you know, in New York, you had you know, Ed Engels, we had a, a long career doing sports on WCBS, Dave Marish before him, who ended up going to TV news for a long career after that. Uh, so I was fortunate to learn by listening at all different times of the day, whether it was before school, listening to the morning sports, uh, listening to games later, uh, and, and then having the chance to go to WFUV and, and put my own spin on things and be able to, to put things together like that. It, it was just a great opportunity. And as you said, so many games, whether it's hockey uh, or football, basketball, whatever it may be. Was there any memories then you calling a game from Fordham that really sticks out to you, whether it was a learning experience or just like a really cool trip or something that just really sticks out to you? Well, probably the, the, the most exciting game I got to call was in my senior year. Uh, it was the first year of the Metro Atlantic 
conference. So they, they didn't have an automatic bid into the NCAA and they, they, they made it to the championship game and they, they won the championship game to win the conference tournament on a jump shot at the buzzer by Mark Murphy, who was a, a shooting guard. Now, unfortunately it only got them to the NIT and they, we did travel to, to uh, Tampa. They played against uh, South Florida Charlie Bradley lit them up for a whole bunch of points. Probably the most famous basketball player to come out of USF. Uh, and, and they didn't win, but that was a whole lot of fun. Tom Penders was the coach then, and he was, he was really fun. Great to be around. Great basketball mind. Just, just a great personality, too. And you mentioned there Fordham basketball and something I kind of wanted to talk about. You mentioned a little bit earlier time, you know, calling some basketball with the bullets. And I was curious to, to talk a little bit about that and your time calling basketball. Obviously you spent a lot of years at the national sense, but what were those 11 seasons calling basketball like? And was that something that you enjoyed doing or you know, how do you look back at that time as you were starting to get, you know, your, your footing as a broadcaster after Fordham? You know, well, it was rather ironic a year after graduation, I went to work at KMOX radio in St. Louis doing some behind the scenes work and same way started with sports casts uh, eventually had a chance to do some sports talk shows. And uh, then in a pinch, uh, I got a chance at the end of the season because there was a conflict for some, I, I actually it was Bill White who was Yankees broadcaster was supposed to do the CBS radio game of the week with John Rooney, who's one of the voices of the Cardinals now and had worked at Camo X and Lloyd Mosby dropped a fly ball in Toronto on a Friday night and the Yankees won and they were two games out with two games to go in the season. And so now suddenly Bill White's not coming. And I get a call. I was waiting for West Coast games to end to record a sports cast for Saturday morning. And it's John Rooney on the phone. He says, what are you doing tomorrow? And it was the Cardinals were about to clinch and win the NL East. I said, well, if they win, we'll be in the clubhouse, you know, getting features and interviews through the champagne celebration for a special that we have to put together for Sunday night. And he says, well, how'd you like to skip all that and come to Kansas City and do the Royals A's game with me on CBS radio tomorrow night? And it sounded like he was out somewhere with a lot of noise in the background. And I, I kind of asked him if he was, is this for real? Or are you like inebriated at this moment or, or. <laughs> And then he told me Lloyd Mosby dropped the fly ball in Toronto. He's not coming. Steinbrenner wants him to stay and do the two Yankees games. I said, really? And there's nobody else that CBS radio can find. And he goes, no, you're, he goes, we've heard your demo tape. They liked it. You're 30 minutes away by plane book a flight. You're coming and do the game. And that was a springboard for me to get a chance to do other things play by play wise. Somehow I'm tangenting off your question here, but this is how I got to the NBA because a few months later, the guy I worked for at KMOX got a call from the Tidewater Ties asking about someone that they were considering to do their games. He said, yeah, that guy's OK, but the guy you want works for us. We'll loan him to you for the season. And that was me. And I ended up going to Norfolk, Virginia Beach for the summer to do AAA baseball. And I was supposed to go back to work at KMOX when the season was over. But about six weeks into that, I got a call from the guy I worked for in St. Louis asking me if I, you know how we found out about jobs then? If they were listed in broadcasting magazine in the classifieds in the <laughs> back of the magazine. And the Washington Bullets and Washington Capitals were leaving WTOP radio and changing stations, both going to different stations. And the Bullets were advertising for a play-by-play -play guy. And so I sent a tape to them and a tape to the New Jersey Devils who were looking for a new play-by-play -play guy at the same time. 
I have to tell you, the devils have still not responded. They have not <laughs> responded to my application. But I got, I got a call sh shortly thereafter. I was in Columbus, Ohio. My girlfriend, girlfriend then, wife now of almost 35 years, uh, was there visiting me. And she said, some guy from D.C. called. He wants you to call him after the game tonight because there were no cell phones. He got the hotel number from the GM of the Tidewater Tides. He wants you to call no matter what time you get done. And that was it. I was in the final four to be considered for the Bullets job. When could I come in for an interview? Triple A baseball back then, we played 140 games in 144 days, four days off during the season. So I went in like the following Friday, interviewed for the job. And on Monday, they offered me the job. So I never, I, I went back to St. Louis after the season just to get my stuff and move to DC. And that started my 11 years of doing pro basketball with some baseball on the side for uh for the Mets I did games for them in 91 while I was also doing games for Tidewater again I did fill-ins for the Orioles in 88 and 89 but you know the NBA was a great experience to talk about interviewing Marv Albert you know who I grew who was who was the part of the era of transistor radio batteries burned out under my pillow when I was supposed to be going to sleep when I was nine or ten years old uh and so you know, it, all of it has been a dream come true. Um, great experience. The time I went in the NBA it was Julia Serving's last year, but we had Magic and Bird and Jordan coming and Isaiah Thomas and, the, and, the, and those Pistons teams and then the Bulls teams. The only team that didn't really win in the time I was with the Bullets was the Bullets. In 11 <laughs> years, we made the playoffs three times in a league where half the teams made the playoffs. My first two years, and then it took nine more years. My last year with the Bullets, they made the playoffs when they had Chris Weber and Jawan Howard and that, that group uh, that at that point in time coached. Uh, that was Bernie Bickerstaff replaced Jim Lynham in, in the, my last year with the Bullets. And I kind of want to move over to baseball. And first, I know you were the play-by-play -play voice of the Rays. And obviously, you ended up with the Nationals. When you joined, really, both of those jobs, both those franchises were extremely young. Is, is How different is, is it to work for a franchise that are you know, just getting birthed out expansion-type teams? Is it different than working for you know, a franchise that's you know, big, whether it be you know, established? Well, I'll let you know when I work for that real established franchise. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm working for them now that the Nationals have yeah, been around yeah. since 2005. I mean, the Bullets had a long history and they won an NBA yeah. championship. Uh, but that was really in a time when the NBA didn't fill arenas, even in, in the finals. It's hard to believe. You know, the NBA really didn't take off in, until the 80s. And David Stern really saved the league with what he did, really with the salary cap and the sponsorships that he was able to bring in and, and making it so that the players were perceived as partners instead of employees. He really, it really was great at what he did with the NBA, but it, it was different. I went to Tampa Bay. They had wanted baseball there for years. They built the stadium without a team in the late eighties, hoping to lure the white Sox. And then it looked like the San Francisco giants were moving. They had everything printed up Tampa Bay giants, uh, Vince DiMoli, who later would own the Rays, thought he was going to own the Giants and looked like the deal was done. And Bill White, who I mentioned earlier as a Yankees broadcaster at that time, had become president of the National League. This was uh, even going back when they had separate presidents, separate umpires for each league in Major League Baseball. But they did not want to lose the San Francisco market. And somehow they got 
uh, Bruce McGowan, who was a minority owner of the Giants, to step up. And they arranged the financing and built their own stadium, and the Giants never moved. So, And then they thought they'd get the next uh, group of expansion teams, but they went to the Miami uh, with the Marlins and then Colorado. And so they were the, they were the Cinderella's without the glass slipper again, uh, you know, <laughs> waiting for that, for that expansion team finally happened. Big build up in 1998 sellout crowd. I was there for the first pitch. Uh, and then when uh, things changed and eventually got the job with the nationals, it was, e- I, I think it was even more emotional opening day first game back in DC because they had had baseball. They had had two different uh, genres of the senators, the one that became the Minnesota twins in 61. And then the expansion senators that eventually moved to Texas in 72, but you had people coming into RFK stadium where the nationals played their first three years. I remember the the booths were off an overhang of the second level. So when you looked out of the booth, the, the, the stadium field was below street level so when i looked out the back of our booth i was seeing people come in when they let the when they opened the gates and they arranged it so the nationals would be taking batting practice second instead of first so people would see them when they walked in and i literally saw people whether it was fathers with grandfather you know with their father grandpa i saw men and women with tears streaming down their faces because it looked, appeared to them, RFK Stadium configured for baseball again, the way they remembered it when they had baseball as a child. And you're talking about a long time from 71 to 2005, 34 years without baseball. That's kind of something I wanted to follow up on is you've obviously had this longstanding relationship now with the Nationals since 2006. And, and I'm curious you know, what it's been like really building a relationship with a local team. You know, we talk a lot in broadcasting about, you know, that allure of going national or doing things at a bigger scale, but there's something special, I think, about, you know, staying as a part of a community like you have in D.C. What has that been like building a relationship with Washington, with the Nationals, and and how would you kind of describe that? Well, people were so starved for it. I mean, we had a immediate built-in fan base that first year. They averaged 34,000. They they drew over two point. 7 million fans the first year for a lot of, there were a lot of skeptics that said that baseball would never work in Washington. And so that's certainly been proven wrong with a new stadium and uh, that you see, you guys can see behind me, um, you know, filled like that and eventually getting an all-star game. And uh, the area where the stadium built was basically a dilapidated burned out part of the city. I mean, taxi cabs wouldn't take you there or come pick you up. And now it's one of the fastest growing uh, areas in the United States, if not the world, uh, as far as uh, inner city areas to live in. And so uh, it, it's been fantastic. Of course, culminates when you are able to, you know, go all the way as they did in 2019 and win the World Series in somewhat, you know, spectacular, miraculous fashion after a 19 and 31 start to the season and then the way they won in the postseason was very dramatic in winning the wild card game and beating the 106 win Dodgers in the division series in five games with a lot of dramatic things happening in that series. Then they blew out the Cardinals in four games in the league championship series. And then everyone wrote them off after they lost all three home games in the world series and had to go back to Houston for game six and seven down three games to two and uh, more dramatics in the way they won that World Series. And so, you know, we've certainly developed a relationship with fans. One of the things that, you know, is still great for baseball radio broadcasters, 
is you get to call the postseason where the TV guys are done when the regular season ends. And so, so many people would turn down the network games and listen to us in the postseason. And so you have your, your ardent fans who've listened to you for years, but you know, that developed a whole new following of people and, and to be able to, you know, that's the thing. So many people will make that jump to TV and may never get to call their team winning a championship. And that's, that's something I'll cherish forever. And you talk about that connection with Washington and obviously when they won the championship, I think especially in baseball, you have that connection, especially with radio broadcasters, because it's really a sport that's geared towards the radio. And it's so as a baseball fan, it's just, it's almost like you're watching it on TV, almost just the, you know, it's really geared really well towards radio. Is that something, just that relationship with the listener that you really love about baseball and doing it on the radio? Absolutely. I, I, I think people hear more of what you have to say on radio I mean, TV, I could watch a game with the sound down. Most people could if, you, if you're if you a fan who follows it uh, closely. But, you know, for radio, you are the eyes and ears. And, you know, you can you have the chance to incorporate stories. You're not at the direction of some, someone telling you what you have to talk about because either they're showing a shot of it or there's pre-produced packages that were done before the game that they have to get in game elements. I mean, they're, you know, we are the blank canvas when the game starts. And we can go in any direction that we choose to describe what's happening for the day. And that's what was frustrating the last two years of not being able to be with the team on the road. I'll give you a perfect example. When you weren't there, I mean, you couldn't watch batting practice. You weren't in the clubhouse. You weren't on the field. This morning at the first workout for Nelson Cruz, new DH for the Nationals, He's just tracking pitches the first time uh, he's in the cage from Eric Fetty, who he's never seen before and doesn't even know because this was his first day in camp. And when Fetty finished what was simulating an inning for him, walking off, Cruz walked right up to him and told him how he thought he was tipping pitches. And now you find out, well, well, why is Nelson Cruz so good at 41? Because maybe he knows what's coming. (laughs) You know, he can pick these things off very quickly, but to immediately do that with a player he's never been with. And then Nelson Cruz had a press conference after the workout today, because it was his first day with the club. And I specifically said, it looked like you were telling Eric Fetty about something he was doing when he was pitching to you. He said, well, he threw me the same pitch five times in a row. And after three pitches, I could tell that he, he was tipping it to me. So I immediately told him so he could fix it now. And so that's, you know, that's things like that are going to be invaluable to a young team when you bring in a guy like Cruz uh, to the nationals this year. Yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't here. Yeah. 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 And I know Andrew's called a couple of games off the monitor to probably tell you the same thing about how (laughs) difficult that can, that can be sometimes. And, and something I wanted to ask about too, on that note, you know, we're talking about getting into the broadcasting side a little bit more you obviously have certain, you know, unique things as sort of slogans or certain approaches to how you call games, whether it's a home run call or, or something that happens on the base pads. And I'm curious how you develop some of the unique things that, that you've, you've learned as a broadcaster and what you kind of think, how your style is a bit unique for maybe other people that you listen to in the past or how you try to be unique as a, as a broadcaster in general. Well, it's a good question. Cause one of my first demos was to uh, uh, Pete Silverman who ran MSG network when I was coming out of college. The first thing, one of the first things he said to me is, you can't sound like Marv Albert. 
Mm-hmm. You got unless you're Kenny Albert, you can sound like Marvin. <laughs> but the rest of us got to develop your own style. You know, when you grow up listening to the same announcers all the time. So one of the things that helped me is when I went to KMOX, completely understated, different style listening to Jack Buck do a game. So these days with satellite radio, you have the chance to just listen to everybody. Back then, we had transistor radios trying to pull in a game from another city, you know, good luck. In New York, we were lucky to have more than one team in each sport. So you can listen to more than one broadcaster and decide what things you like or what things you might incorporate or what, you know, trying not to sound like somebody else. But it's, it's interesting. When I got hired to do the bullets, the guy that hired me, his name was Goff Labar. Goff Labar, by the way, hired Howard Stern. Hmm. The Greasemen, famous shock DJs, you know, in his career. But Goff Labar's father went by the name of Bert Lee when he was on the air in the 1940s. He hired Marty Glickman to do the Knicks. And Marty Glickman basically invented basketball play by play on the radio. Well, Marty Glickman. Who was the guy that he was the mentor for? He was the mentor for Marv Albert, who he hired to fill in for him while Marv was still in college at Syracuse. When Marty started to do other things and they needed, that's why Marv finished his, his degree at NYU, where Kenny went, uh, because he needed to be in New York. Well, Marv grew up listening to Marty Glickman and I grew up listening to Marv, who, and Goff Labar's dad hired Marty Glickman. So when he had his group of demo tapes for the Bullets job in 1986, he asked Marty Glickman to listen to his final group. Hmm. And the guy that Goff Labar was going to pick is the same guy that Marty Glickman picked out of that group of tapes. That was me. And I had never met Marty Glickman at that point. I met him a short time thereafter, but he... You know, the, the Marty Glickman, Marv Albert style of basketball and radio is a full descriptive staccato type play by play. You hear a lot of guys now don't give you a court description of where a guy is when he shoots the ball. They don't tell you the pass was a bounce pass or a lob. You know, I listening to Marv, you got all that, a, you know, a hook shot, a fadeaway. You know, he told you if it hit the rim, the glass, the rim and rolled around and went in all of that. Not just it's good or no good, or here's the, the balls to this guy, to this guy, to this guy, the shot's no good. And you hear a lot of that. And that's because a lot of guys grew up watching TV where you don't have to be as descriptive. But on radio, the more to me, the more you give, the more people can see in their mind. And that's so if I have someone fill in with me on, on, on a baseball game, I found baseball to me is the hardest sport to step in and do on a fill in basis. Cause it's, it's kind of the rhythm of no rhythm with baseball because of the pace can be fast when the ball is hit and then there's no pace when nothing's happening. So whereas faster paced sports like basketball, you get a rhythm, you got your play by play. Usually when there's a timeout, you're going right to commercial. So there's not as much time to fill. So it's completely different, but you know, I'll, I'll sometimes have to remind someone to say, Hey, it's popped up. You didn't say first baseman caught it. You didn't say whether he was in fair, or, you know, was it fair or foul? Cause first baseman, third baseman are going to be near the line. 
you know, so I always like to think, you know, you got to tell people where they are on the field too, just like they are on where they are on the court and just try and I try and remember a lot. Hey, someone's tuning in for the first time. They may not know Juan Soto's a left-handed hitter. And it's very easy on radio to never say whether he's in the box from the right side or the left side or remind people which way the pitcher throws that he's right-handed, left-handed, you know, these days, tell people that the pitcher's winding up because so few pitchers are winding up anymore. They're all pitching out of the stretch or some short, what I call no wind up, little league wind up. Not for sure. All that stuff, it's, it's definitely really interesting. And I, I kind of wanted to get into just about the industry in general. Obviously, it's changed a lot since you've broke into it, and it's going to change probably in the next few few years or it has been changing really since COVID, especially in MLB, they just had the huge deal with Apple and NBC Peacock and all that stuff. So I was just kind of interested in what do you think the broadcasting industry is really going into and how would you recommend either, you know, college kids, young professionals really tailor themselves towards those changes? Well, it, it really depends what you want to do. If you want to do play by play, you know, it, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm going to do some practice games off TV there's nothing like being in a game, even if you go to a high school game and there's 20 parents there and you can find a spot to call the game, to get a rhythm of the game and see the entire field. I used to do that a lot. I used to go to major league games with a tape recorder and go to a spot where there was nobody, you know, in the stands on a day when they're not, you know, going to have a huge crowd and do the game. I did it at hockey games. I did it at basketball games. Uh, if I got a credential when I was at FUV or sports phone, I'd find a spot and at least do part of the game when I was there, whether it was whatever sport it was, just to keep doing it with a presence where it actually sounded like a real game with, with it's so different if you're in an arena with an organ or whatever piped in music or a ballpark than it is you, you, to me, you just can't simulate the same sound and ambiance of a stadium or an arena by doing it off your television. And you can't, as you know, you can't see it all either. So it's, it's you def, definitely don't have the feel for it that way. So that's my advice. Whatever it is, do as much of it as you can, wherever you can do it. Yeah, and I read a similar story about how you had called games, you know, while playing, you know, Little League Baseball as a catcher. You know, we heard similar <laughs> things with Vin Scully doing the same thing when he was in the outfield calling games and, and things like that. And I know your broadcast partner with the Nationals had a similar story as that, too. And, and kind of with all that put together, one of my last questions I wanted to ask is if you could just go back to talk to your your former self when you came to FEV as a freshman. And, you, you know, you kind of mentioned it's all been a dream since. But what would be that advice that you would give to that younger self when they do start that career in broadcasting and how they can can, you know, try and have success in it? It, to me, it helps when you know exactly what you want to do. And a lot of young people, you know, they'd come to FUV even back when I was there. Well, I like this, but I don't know if, if it's a career. You know, the faster you can figure out what direction you want to go, the more of what you want to do is you can focus on. And, you know, I, I even did, I, I DJed when I was there. Uh, I did newscasts to make sure I could write and read a newscast if I had to get that job. And, and that's the thing. Um, uh, I know people who want to do one particular thing, and I think you can pigeonhole yourself that way. You need to get a job in the business when you get out of school. Whatever way in that is, is in. Rather than saying, well, I'll only do this sport or I only want to do a, be a sports talk show host, the more you can do, the more chance you have that you will get in the business. 
And I, and I think that that's the best advice I could give someone. Take advantage of everything there that they can offer you. Don't leave a stone unturned. You know, sleep is overrated. For sure. And especially, I think, in today's day and age with technology and podcasts where you can just pick up a microphone and just start recording uh, to your computer. It's, you know, it's definitely something that maybe it's a lot easier to do now compared to, you know, when you were in Fordham. Well, even a few years ago, if we wanted to do what yeah. we're doing now, I would have to be there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Zoom and, and, and this type of technology, of course, really blown up because of the pandemic, because people were at home. Uh, but this this has opened, you know, new avenues to way to do things. This is how most podcasts are done now. No, you know, nobody has to be in a studio anymore to do a show. If you have good enough equipment and, uh, you know, good enough ambient, make, make sure you have some carpet in the room so your sound isn't very hollow. Then you pretty much could do anything from anywhere except the game. I still say you got to be at the <laughs> yes. game to do the game the right way. And so, yeah, you know, at the top, you asked me, I mean, I'm ecstatic about being able to go back on the road and do the games the way they're supposed to be done. Cause it's just, there's, there's little things that happen on buses and planes or batting practice, uh, you know, to be able to incorporate stories in about a restaurant you went to something happened in that city. I mean, we had nothing the last two years when the team was on the road and we weren't there you know, we're doing a, a East Coast game at 10 o'clock at night. You, you basically do all your prep at home and show up at the booth at, you know, 20 minutes before you go on the air. It was just a very detached from from the reality of it. I'll say well, this, though. We, we definitely hope to see you in New York, though, when the, when you come in. A, yeah. when the down. I'm just going to oh, say would that. Have been, it could have been opening day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it, I'll tell you what, it's going to be interesting to see how they work out this thing in New York with guys who can't play. Yeah, because they're yeah. Not vaccinated. I mean, for the NBA had not what 98% vaccinated. So you said Kyrie Irving uh, doing this thing with the Nets where he didn't play, but got a ticket, showed up as a fan and sat in the first row. It was pretty funny. <laughs> but then went yeah. in the locker room and got the team fined 50 grand. Yep. It's a whole yeah. other thing. If you have half a dozen or, you know, several of your best baseball players on a team can't play at home, but they can play yeah. on the road or the visiting team can play. It makes yeah. no sense. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll have to see. It's going to be a big topic, I think, in the next few weeks. Yeah, but definitely when, like, as a Mets fan, definitely when they, they play the Nationals next time, I'll have to somehow get the the Washington feed to, to, to give you guys a listen for sure. Uh, but the radio voice of the Washington Nationals and WFUV sports alum, Charlie Slows. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. You're welcome, guys. Big thanks to Charlie Slows, the radio voice of the Washington Nationals WFUV alum. Really fun interview, Alex, between his start going all the way back to how he called games in high school, talking about how he'd bring a tape recorder to either a stadium or even a high school field to call games. That was definitely re really interesting, obviously, leading up to his time with the Nationals and then calling a World Series on the biggest of stages. Yeah, yeah. So much to unpack, like you mentioned there, Andrew. And, and definitely... You know, with off the air, some of my favorite things are always about hearing the stories, but I also really love the yeah. lessons. And I thought there was a lot of really, really good things here that Charlie, you know, advised young broadcasters on, whether it is the importance of actually being in an arena. And we know this, you know, with the pandemic, how important that can be. You know it about, you know, hearing the sounds of an organ, hearing the sounds of a crowd, knowing how to call in that atmosphere. That was a really, really great piece of advice, I think, to young broadcasters, that there's a difference between calling games off your TV or calling them in an arena, even if you're not on the air and getting that experience. You know, that's why we do all the demos over here, you know, for example, and, and learning that, you know, that was really interesting. Hearing about some of the people that inspired him, 
growing up was also really interesting. So just a lot of really, really good stuff about how, you know, to become a broadcaster and what his journey has kind of been like, because there's a lot of, like you mentioned, overlap with what we've heard from other broadcasters about that experience calling games while playing as a little league player or listening to the Mets growing up. Like we've heard that from other alumni before, but I thought Charlie had a really, really interesting spin on it and a lot of great advice for, for people to take away from this. Not for sure. It's almost like a history lesson in uh, New York Absolutely. broadcasting to yes. hear, to hear like, you know, everyone from all the different teams, whether it be Marty Glickman, who obviously has Fordham ties, Marv Albert and you know what, what he meant to Charlie and just the list goes on and on. And to me, that's so cool to kind of hear that, you know, the trajectory of all the way back to like the 1950s to now, it's definitely really interesting to see how the broadcasting, you know, field has really grown and, you know, it's it's progression from, you know, just starting, you know, radio, what Marty Glickman did with the Knicks to all the way to how it is now just such obviously a huge field. Yeah, and there's so much to, to say there about that, because he kind of talks about how Marty, in a sense, invented, you know, basketball play by play. You know, you kind of asked that question about how things have changed so much over the years. Right. You know, you have different growths, different mediums and baseball going in new places. Right. And things like that. But when you really boil it down to the basics, those fundamentals that Marty taught to people like you know, Charlie and people of that era are still the same things that we're teaching students today. And that's always the thing that stuck to me so much is that, you know, formats can change, mediums can change. But when it comes to radio, specifically baseball, like you mentioned, those fundamentals are never going to change. And it's stuff that Charlie learned and stuff that we can continue to take away from people like him today, how those fundamentals of the of the art remain the same. And that's something that's just really, really powerful to me. And, and you can kind of learn from from doing these interviews and talking to people like Charlie. Not for sure. It's almost like a little workshop that you get. Obviously, we do the workshops for, for FUV, but these are like, yeah. yeah, for sure. But it's almost like it's like, you know, two on one on two, obviously, whoever's listening out there. It's just really interesting to even hear how he was saying how people our age or maybe a little younger, they grew up watching games on TV. So you don't always get that detail sometimes. Like even that I find just so, so interesting and something that is definitely, I think, in baseball, so important just to kind of, you know, that relationship between the fan and the broadcaster. He talked about it, you know, especially with the Nationals, just so strong. And it was just really, really cool to hear about that. Yeah, and it's also interesting, too, because we talk to a lot of people that are in the New York market, right? You know, we talk to, you know, about the Knicks and that's that's what, you know, our hemisphere yeah, is. But yeah. also, whenever you branch out to that and you get to talk to someone that's in, you know, Vegas, like a Dan Duver, that's in, you know, Washington, like Charlie. So as you could see, too, how, you know, the sport of baseball is really transcendent like that. You know, he kind of talked about that that experience of people you know, having tears in their eyes when they saw baseball coming back to Washington again. And that's not something I really knew about, you know, to hear that story yeah. was also really, really interesting is how powerful baseball is. And like, you know, we talk about the lockout, we talk about, you know, broadcasters going on the road again. I think people care so much about that stuff because they care so much about baseball. And that's something that you can get from an interview like this. And they care so much about the the broadcasting behind it, which is just a really interesting thing to, to learn as well. Uh, definitely for sure. Thank you to Charlie again for coming on. It was definitely a wonderful interview. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And if you're ever in the Washington area, definitely, uh, you know, turn that dial to, I believe it's 106.7 is the fan correct. down yes, there yes, in, in Washington and listen to Charlie and we'll see what happens to the Nationals this year. Obviously rebuilding a bit, but at least when they're flying to the Nets, I'll have to somehow find that channel here in the New York area. But for my partner, Alex Voles, I'm Andrew Villada saying enjoy the rest of your day and stay tuned for more on Off the Air, the legacy of WFUB Sports. Oh, oh, oh.